Hello, I'm Brian Shaw, corporate partner in MBM's London office. I'm joined today by my colleague, Caroline Urban, a director in our London corporate team, and our special guest, Ricardo Bruni, co-founder of Heroes, a tech-driven serial entrepreneur of e-commerce businesses. Uh, you may be aware that Caroline and I co-host MBM's M&A Snack and Chat podcast. Now, on that podcast, traditionally, myself and Caroline and our guests would be snacking and munching on, on lovely snacks from around the world. But today, no snacks. So, Caroline, over to you. Rick, do you want to give a really brief introduction on who you are? Yeah, sure. Real quick background on myself. Let's start my financial career or my professional career in, in, in M&A in London, spending time in investment banking, venture capital, and, uh, and lately have been the, the founder and CEO of, of Heroes a platform which acquires consumer brands, predominantly in the Amazon space. Yeah, it's an extremely exciting journey, of course. Um, and yeah, happy to sort of touch on everything M&A, um, from, especially from a legal perspective. As Brian mentioned, we've, we've split today's session in kind of three key areas, doing the deal and then integration and growth. So let's jump straight in with a, a bit of context. Rick, do you want to give us a really brief insight into the Heroes business model, which we've already touched on, but more about the significance of M&A in that model? I think M&A in our business model is, is probably significantly more important than with many other business models. It's uh, it's in a way our engine and our fuel engine. Right? But for some other teams, that will be the sales team. For us, it's really about M&A and identifying businesses through which we grow. We are a platform which acquires consumer brands, which predominantly sell through Amazon. So that's really the bread and butter of what we do about identifying brands, due diligence those brands, speaking to those respective sellers, building relationship and acquiring these brands and growing as a business. The majority of the growth comes really from, from m and right? from buying multiple brands on an ongoing basis. So people ask us, what is different to you than to a private equity fund? I think we take a very different approach to m and we don't buy businesses with the intention of selling it. And that's really, I think, the big difference here to a private equity fund, where at a point of entry of acquisition, they already form a view of how they could sell that business in five to seven years time. We buy a business with the intention of operating it until infinity, if you want, which I think really results in a very different mindset of how we approach the business, how we evaluate the business, how we integrate the business, and how we run and manage the, the, that business. Because M&A is so key to the business model, in an ideal world, how quickly would you like to acquire businesses? Very, very fast. When I say very fast, I'm potentially talking about weeks opposed to months, right? If we, if you think about it, right, that, that's also where a big degree of, of, of our innovation comes from, right? Where we differentiate ourselves from more traditional and scale, let's say private equity funds or more traditional uh, M&A platform plays is that we have the ability to acquire businesses much faster given the way we have set up. All our targets, which we're acquiring are operating and sitting on the Amazon platform, they're very similar to each other, right? And it doesn't matter whether you're a pets business based out of Germany or a baby business based out of the UK or a beauty business based out of Italy, you are effectively, from a purely financial perspective, you have the exact same PL. And that means that we conduct our financial due diligence significantly faster than in other industries. We pull the financials directly from Amazon, which gives us a significantly higher degree of comfort given that there's no way to fudge those numbers. That means we can actually conduct our at least commercial and financial due diligence in a very, very condensed period of time. And we can come to a buying conclusion sometimes within days or weeks. Nice challenge for us. <laughs> <laughs> Just on that, how do you identify your, your targets? 
the identification is the is almost the easy bit, right? It's it's easy to identify a an attractive business we want to acquire. It's similar to if you are if you are flat hunting or if you're looking to move into a new flat or potentially looking to buy a house, it's easy to walk down a beautiful street and point at a flat and say, I want to buy that flat. But just mm -hmm. because you're good at identifying that potential flat, it doesn't give you the right to acquire that flat. It's very easy to identify attractive brands, which at least from the outside look very attractive, right? And Amazon provides us with a, a, a lot of amount of information which we can digest, right? The number of reviews, the, the, the average ratings, the organic positioning within their respective category, which is all, all data points we can take into account. And we can often, before even having a conversation with a, with a seller, already uh, have a with a very high certainty know whether we want to acquire the business or not obviously there's that delay in terms of us reaching out to that respective seller mm -hmm. that respective seller answering willing willing to speak to us get on a call being willing to sell the business um, that is just something which then takes time but to go back to your question it's really about once we have the conversation with the seller once the seller has actually shown interest to potentially sell their business mm -hmm. that is really where i think the, the m a process in a way starts that from that point onwards, that would be an ideal world where that would take 15 days. Do you find that um, the sellers you approach are keen to sell? Do you find that some are hesitant? It really is often mom and pop shops, husband and wife, people who have started selling on Amazon with the intention of generating side income. And what a lot of people have found themselves in is that their business on Amazon have scaled much faster than they had anticipated and reached a scale which is also much larger than what they had initially anticipated. Reaching that scale, they reach a point where they can no longer manage the business. Scaling the business further requires skill sets or requires financial resources, which they don't necessarily have access to. These businesses are often cash generative. They're profitable. They're growing fast, right? E-commerce as a whole is growing fast. There was a massive, massive boost last year in 2020 as a result of COVID, where a lot of these businesses have had an additional growth push, where some of these businesses are growing 100% year on year. They're also operating at 20 to 35% profit margin. So from a purely financial perspective, these are highly attractive assets, but a lot of the sellers don't have that financial background or M&A background like, like you guys do, where they often are not aware that they're setting on a, on a, on a sellable asset. That, so that's the one part. The second part is that the businesses are cash flow generative. So there's no necessity for them to actually sell the business. We know that Heroes has pretty sophisticated due diligence processes on their side at this point. So in terms of actually doing the deal, what do you find are some of the biggest obstacles you come across? What we already touched upon is actually getting the seller to sell their business. Once we're past that stage, the biggest obstacle is really probably on the legal counsel on the seller side of things, right? And, and, and equally key to sort of your, your views here, but right, this is an M&A process and the majority of people we deal with have never gone through an M&A process, right? And that, that requires them taking legal advice. And in the first instance, they need to find a legal counsel which helps them through that process. But that sometimes takes five days, sometimes takes 10 days. It has taken up to, to two months sometimes for a seller to appoint a legal counsel. But even once we're past that stage and the, and the legal counsel is engaging, what we often find is that those legal counsels, are, again, they're, they're not used to the kind of transaction and the kind of speed under which we are looking to operate, quite namely a very condensed uh, process, a very fast process. And what we often find ourselves in is that I think legal counsels are taking the, the, the view of being against each other, right? So it's, it's two counterparts and it's one counterpart against each other. And it's the seller against the buyer or the buyer against the seller. But then I think that's where, where we find difficulty that it's a, it's a constant find 
to to negotiate with these legal counsels, opposed to right. And I think always a good reminder is that there's two principles on both sides who have a, who have a commercial goal in mind, namely coming together on a commercial M&A transaction. And what we find is that the legal counsels on the on the on the sell side often are not aligned with that. Right? It's it's really about being overly prospe- uh, protective or sometimes even hostile in towards us, right? And, and towards, mm-hmm. the, towards the buyer and overly protecting the, the seller, which in our eyes drags out the process, uh, drives up the fees at the detriment of the seller, right? And, and that's where we find usually that's the biggest hurdle to actually overcome. No, I mean, it's frustrating as well from our side because here we have a willing buyer and a willing seller and when legal counsel, look, they're doing their job in terms of, of identifying the risk and explain the risk to their clients. At the end of the day, they need to have practical solutions. Yeah, no, fully, fully agree. I think no one is going to give you points for, for failed processes, right? But if the deal falls through, at the end of the day, no, there's no commercial outcome for anyone. So I think we, we're all losing. We, mm. we all have incurred legal costs, which, which again, is not, is, not a great, is not a great outcome, right? It's really, really important to remain commercial and, and remind ourselves what actually the goal is and be more goal-oriented. And of course, as I said, right, the, the inexperience of the sellers we're dealing with, right? And I, I don't say that in a, in, a, in, a bad, in a bad way, right? We have the biggest respect for the, for the entrepreneurs we, we work with. And, I, and they are true entrepreneurs, right? I, I, I always stress that. They, they may be entrepreneurs far away from the more traditional London-based tech scene, but they're nevertheless true entrepreneurs who've built a business and who've found suppliers and iterated on the product and, and, and managed to build a superior product to anyone else in the market. And these are businesses generating millions and millions of revenue, very, very successful people at what they have built. But that does not mean that you have experience in, in running an M&A process. But that also means that I think we have to do sometimes a lot of handholding. Sellers do appreciate that. They don't feel like they're being... They're um, not doing this all on their own. Exactly. Brian and I often ask our guests whether, and they're usually selling their business, whether they like their buyer. And that might seem like a really odd question, but when you're selling your baby, as a lot of these sellers are, to someone, you you get to know them quite well. And as you say, there's quite a bit of handholding and principle to principle conversation. So there's definitely a relationship building there. How do you find that that relationship kind of feeds into the deal feel? Well, it starts with the very first interaction. I think, as you said, they're selling their baby, right? And depending on the structure of how the acquisition ultimately is, is structured, right? Whether it's a, it's a full cash at, at closing or there's an earnout structure, it could result in a structure where there's a long-term partnership uh, formed between the seller and, and the buyer, right? Over six months or 12 months or 24 months or so, where it is really important that from the first interaction onwards, the sellers feel like that Heroes is a trusted partner and it's people they would like to work with. Building that level of, of confidence and credibility with the seller is extremely important. It's not about just rocking up to a call and being the most aggressive and, and putting the highest bid on the table, but it's about building that relationship with the seller. And we had MA processes where the seller decided to sell the business to us, despite us bidding lower than, than anyone else. But where the seller, I think precisely for the reasons you mentioned, felt most comfortable selling the business to, to heroes because we showed the greatest interest not only in the financial side of the business, but rather in the product, in the owner, in the in the, in the history of the of the brand. That is just sort of the kind of relationship we're looking we're looking to to, to nurture to think of Heroes as a great partner going forward. So that takes us through the sort of the doing the deal bit of it, and this this is the bit that I find is quite exciting, that which is integration. So you've now bought the business, you now have to integrate it. And what would you say are the most important elements of integration on your end? 
Um, as I mentioned before, we focus on businesses which predominantly sell through, through Amazon. And we focus on businesses which predominantly use a fulfillment method called FBA, which is fulfilled by Amazon. Now, Amazon has, I think, arguably built the most sophisticated infrastructure globally. And Amazon has taken the conscious decision to open up that infrastructure for third-party sellers to leverage that infrastructure to fulfill orders. That has resulted in emergence of a lot of third-party sellers who sell on Amazon, but never really handle the logistical side of running an e-commerce business. So the, the most typical Amazon seller and the kind of businesses we acquire have a supplier, which in most cases sits in China. That supplier provides a, a private label product and ships that product directly to Amazon into the Amazon warehouse. And from that point onward, Amazon handles everything from a logistic perspective. The owners never really touch any of the products. They manage the business entirely from their living room or an office. And of course, manage the listing of Amazon itself, which is very from the marketing exercise of the content, the listing, the wording, the, the translation, et cetera, mm -hmm. and managing the supply chain um, from getting the products from China into, into the Amazon warehouse. Now, what that means is that each and every business we acquire, the infrastructure they sit on is the same. That means the integration of those businesses is very streamlined. Here, we're talking sometimes about integration taking anything from 20 minutes to 20 days, right? It's really about integrating the Amazon seller account, uh, moving inventory uh, into our own warehouses, taking over any software which the, the current owners are operating, uh, integrating that all into our own platform, uh, managing any staff, any contractors which, which are working towards the current, the current business. But that is all something which, which is very streamlined and, and makes also our business model so attractive because of that fast integration process. We, we've had a couple of guests on our, our podcast who have sold their businesses and then they they stay on with the business in a slightly more different relationship. You know, they'll be subject to an earn out, which I know Brian has negotiated many times. Um, and that can often be a slightly different and maybe a bit more strained relationship. It feels like with your sellers, the relationship is much more amicable and a bit more like there are no legal or financial strings attached as such it's just a sort of a joint effort to integrate the business would you agree with that analysis again going back to sort of the rationale of why the owner sold the business right the owner sold their business because they want to dedicate their time towards something else or because they want to take off money off the table to de-risk for what they have what they have built we don't want to defeat the entire purpose of them having sold the business and being able to dedicate their time towards building a new business by locking them into having to spend 40 hours a week to build their business on behalf of heroes, locking them in, giving them instructions, uh, managing them, potentially micromanaging them. That's not what we do. They are the ones who have built the business and they are the ones who hold the expertise and the knowledge. And, and we're not blind to the fact that they know way, way more than, than we do. And yes, we have access to more resources. That's nothing against five, six years of having built that business and knowing it inside out. What we don't tend to do is manage those people, but rather... You know, we love to keep them involved, but more from a strategic perspective, strip out all the boring tasks from them, all the admin, all the le you know, legal tax, finance, uh, paying VAT, paying tax, uh, dealing with Brexit, uh, dealing with any supply chain issues. That are all something which our team takes over. But if they want to re remain involved more from a strategic perspective, new product development, finding new suppliers, product testing, which, by the way, is also something what we find is the, the element which they like the most. It's the most tangible aspect of the business. It's about speaking to suppliers, finding how can we further improve the product? How can we use a different fabric? How can we use a different material to further improve the product? But that's sort of the kind of relationship we really enjoy. And I think what we're seeing is they also get a lot out of it, right? But being part of a fast-growing tech business, you know, startup if you want. 
So you've acquired these fantastic businesses now. How do you now grow all of these businesses? And bearing in mind that there, you know, there are lots of different products, there, there are different, different small businesses coming onto a bigger platform. It's something which is extremely important to us, right? It's not, it's not just about, I mentioned before, inorganic growth is, is in a way, you know, that's the fuel to, to, our, to our business, right, to our engine. But in our eyes, there's no business model if we're not able to organically grow these businesses. Then it just becomes financial engineering and it just becomes about adding more businesses on top of each other. What is our North Star metric is about being able to buy these businesses, but then also being able to optimize them and grow them through organic growth. And, and we have multiple levers of growing those businesses. It can be through international expansion, right? Uh, so if you think about one of the first businesses we, we acquired in the baby category, that's a business which we have tripled in size in a matter of three months. That was a business which was only selling in the Amazon.co.uk marketplace. But a business, a product which we, three months post the acquisition, took into Germany, into France, into Italy, into Spain, into Netherlands, into Poland, into Sweden. And we have tripled the business in a very, very short period of time. And that's not where it stops. It's, we now have containers on its way to, to the US. Uh, where we believe that we can grow the business by another 50% from its current state. So it's really about finding levers of how we can grow these businesses. Um, and international expansion is a, is a very obvious one. Uh, optimization of the supply chain is, is a big one. To be able to place larger orders with suppliers, drive down the unit price, ensuring that we're always fully stocked. If you're fully stocked, you can build your organic ranking as well. That all drives the, the Amazon algorithm. So it's really about optimizing the supply chain. So those two elements are really the biggest drivers. And then we have a long list of additional drivers. It's about how can we take this product outside of the Amazon world? And it's about launching it on eBay, launching it on other marketplaces, um, building direct marketing channels, and ultimately taking this product into the offline world. I'm fully aware that the offline world doesn't sound very attractive uh, talking about it in a sort of post-COVID environment but it still remains a, a dominant driver of retail as a whole. 40 to, to 60% of, of the entire retail market still remains offline. And if you have products which have been validated to be able to take them into offline is, uh, is, is a massive diversification also of your business model, which then mm. translates into a, a de-risking of our entire business model, right? So you reduce the dependency you have on, on Amazon as a whole. Watch this space. Mm, hero store coming to your new high <laughs> street. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Just before we finish, it's tradition on our podcast that we do a rapid fire round, which okay. means you will have 60 seconds to answer as many questions in that time. So on your mark, get set. What was your first job? Banker. You were having a dinner party and could invite three guests, alive, fictional or, or dead. Who would you invite and why? Can I can I can I go with with I'd love to and I'd, I'd love to invite the two of you just because we've been trying to grab a drink for a very yeah. long period of time and we've never managed to and that's really as a result of of lockdown so I would I would invite the two of you and Alessio and we're just gonna have a very enjoyable dinner. Gosh, thank you. Um, favorite movie? I'll go with The Godfather. If Richard Branson sat next to you on a flight, what would be your first question other than Are you Richard Branson? I would, I would pretend not to know him. What is the strangest place you have visited? Museum Island in Japan. If you could travel back in time to meet your 10-year-old self, what advice would you give him? Don't go into banking. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, if you were down to your last 10 pounds, where would you invest it? Amazon. <laughs> Fair enough. 
thank you all for joining us. Thank you again, Rick. Thanks, it was a lot of fun. Join us next time when Caroline and I will be joined by another special guest and we will chat and snack all things M&A. Bye all. Goodbye.